listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, just before we get to our guest today, I just want to let you know about an opportunity coming up in 2020, March 10th and 11th, right here in uh, Denver, Colorado area. I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience on managing leadership anxiety. If you've gotten any benefit from the podcast or maybe you've read my book, I I think you know that, that we all have things bubbling under the surface. We also find ourselves in environments of anxiety. And we also have learned that anxiety occurs in groups in recurring patterns. But listening to it and reading about it isn't going to bring transformation. That's why I'm hosting this two-day workshop. For two days, March 10th and 11th, 2020, you'll be sitting around a table with six or eight others, people like you. I'll be teaching concepts. And all through the two days, after learning a concept, you'll be working the concept right there at the table. And you'll come away not just having learned, but having already put into practice some of the best principles I know to identify anxiety, move through it, and tools to really build your emotional health. This can be for an individual, but it's also perfectly designed for a team because your team can sit right at a table together and work together. If you want tickets or want to know more about that, you can go to stevecusswords.com. And now for today's guest. I'm joined today by Todd Bolsinger. Uh, Todd is a Vice President at Fuller Seminary for Vocation and Formation, and he's also now Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation. Not only that, he's a Presbyterian. But I think Todd's probably most known for his remarkable leadership book, Canoeing the Mountains. It came out several years ago, and it instantly became a classic. It's one of those books that when you're just listing one leadership book to read, this is often the book that I tell people to read because it has everything. It has systems theory, but it also just has incredibly practical advice. So Todd joined me to talk about canoeing and other topics, particularly what it's like to lead a seminary in a rapidly changing cultural environment. So obviously in canoeing, you know, your metaphor is uncharted territory, but you use um, um, an acronym uh, VUCA. Maybe you'd just be willing to explain what that is. Well, it's a military acronym is what it is. Um, it means volatile, uh, uncontrollable, complex, and ambiguous. And w- it was really a, a, a way of saying uh, that once the shots start firing, you don't really can't control anything. And it became a, a very helpful analogy for the business world when uh, traditional business um, plans were beginning to be changed by disrupted markets. And I use it as just a way of talking about the fact that what is normal now, even in places like the church, is that you um, have to be continually open to dealing with change all the time. Yeah. When would you say is the last time that you were in that situation yourself in your own leadership context? Uh, lunch, right before I started here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm in, I'm in theological education. So, um, and you know, right now we're in a in a in an industry that is in decline because the church is in decline, and it's in and it's changing dramatically because it was built on a graduate school model, and the places where the church is growing are with people in places in the world where people aren't interested in graduate education, and so we're grappling with how do we continue to deliver what we believe that there is a need for a learned you know clergy and uh, development of leaders with from an educational model. Um, well, at the same time, acknowledging that it's rapidly changing like, I mean, as rapidly as we can get. And 
five years here at Fuller, I have experienced uh, so much change that every single year we start in it with a kind of a, one of our assumptions gone from the year before. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like even five years ago, you were entering a dynamic changing situation, mm-hmm. but it, it sounds like the change itself keeps changing. Yeah, exactly. So, so when I came to Fuller, um, they had just changed their curriculum and they brought me on as the vice president for vocation formation. And when President Mark Labradin, who was the brand new president, he said, look, one of the, the world is changing. And one of the things we know that won't change is that people need to be deeply formed spiritually. So we're going to put spiritual formation right in the middle of our curriculum. And we're going to not just make that an extracurricular. That's going to be what Fuller's all about from the very beginning. That, that doesn't seem radical to people from the outside. But when you have a graduate education where people have been working through the curriculum and the assumption is that people come to seminary already spiritually mature, um, I, I joke all the time that everybody who comes to seminary, someone told them, you're the best Christian I know, you should go pro, <laughs> right? And, and we start realizing that what we have is students who needed and want to be formed. Well, then we started changing. We started working on that change. Well, then by the second year, my question we were working on is, well, what if the majority of our students who come for formation, who want to be developed for ministry in the world, want to do it online? And we had people saying that stuff like, well, you can educate people online, but you really can't form them online. Spiritual formation has always been face-to-face. And so we started diving into that pretty deeply. And I'm not a guy who came out of, I mean, I'm, I'm of the generation where formation and education was face-to-face. But we started asking questions like, well, did Paul form everybody face-to-face? Or is there a biblical example of maybe using technology over distance to form people like the New Testament, perhaps? <laughs> and so we began to then grapple with that. How do you form people over distance? Well, by the third year, we were asking the question, what if people need leadership training and formation, but they don't need a graduate degree? What if they're in a denomination where you don't need to have a master's degree, but they want the depth of the scholarship and history? Well, how do we do that? And so I, I had to develop a brand new division in the school. I mean, that's all just in three years. So, so, so every year we have another challenge, and it's been radically changing. Yeah. You write a lot in canoeing about um, transformative leadership. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that really made me sit up that I, uh, it made so much sense when you said it, but I, I'd never read it this succinctly, is you said it, excuse me, you said it starts with competence mm-hmm. and you actually speak about why it doesn't begin with character. Mm-hmm. Could you give us the context for that? I thought that was fascinating. Well, what I meant by it in, is, is I think we'd all want to have leaders who, it, uh, their leaders are unshakable character. Unfortunately, most people who get put into leadership get put into it because they're competent. So the very best salesperson becomes the sales manager. The very best uh, strategist becomes the CEO. The very best um, professor ends up becoming the dean. You start realizing that, um, like the thing about senior pastors, most senior pastors in most big churches they're competent at preaching more than they are at yeah. anything else, right? Yeah. So there are certain skill sets that people have to be competent in or they're not given the opportunity to lead. The mistake is thinking that that competence in that skill set is enough to lead. So that's why in the book, I talk about competence plus congruence. And congruence is really the kind of character that means you are the same person in every setting so that people trust you. So it puts the credibility of competence together with the trust that comes out of being a congruent human being and a congruent Christian in our case, um, so that people will trust you and follow you into uncharted territory when they're 
not sure where the future is taking. Yeah, I've got that written down here. Relational congruence. This is, I believe, there's a direct quote, Todd. The ability to be fundamentally the same person with the same values in every relationship, in every circumstance, and especially amidst every crisis. Yeah, indeed, indeed, and that's and so when you talk about a kind of character, um, that's really what's needed in leadership. It's it's that that person you can trust that person to be the same person toward you and toward the crisis as they would be in any setting, um, and especially in the um, where I spend most of my time is working with people going through change systems. Change is always the experience of loss. Change requires learning. So there needs to be a humility. I always say that adaptive change starts when someone stands up and says, we've got to go forward and I don't know what the solution is. And instead of letting, I don't know, stop them. I don't know, starts the journey. Then you absolutely need to know that that person is as competent as they can be and that they will be congruent. So when they're making decisions, you trust that they have your your best interests in mind as well. I think one of the one of the questions I'd love to hear from you about is um, this congruence. You do a lot of coaching of churches and church leaders. Mm-hmm. You must run into preachers whose faith is shifting, and they're trying to manage the congruence and integrity of presenting. A clear teaching of scripture from the pulpit while privately having doubts or, mm-hmm. you know, having the room and freedom to reorient their own faith. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on that? Well, so when I first, so when I was uh, 33 years old, I was asked to become a senior pastor of a church. So, um, and they asked me, they said, Todd, do you have any areas in your life where you have questions and doubts? And I said, oh, I got all kinds of them. And they said, well, what are you going to do with those from the pulpit? And I said, nothing. My goal in the pulpit is to be faithful to the, to the work of God in the room. The work of God in the room has something to do with me. Like I can never preach something I didn't believe. But at the same time, it's not my job to work out my faith on my congregation. I need to have other places to do that. And if the gap ever becomes so hot, so strong, uh, so wide that I can't faithfully stand up and preach the gospel and uphold the scriptures, then I'll probably need to step back from it. But in the meantime, it's not my job to use my congregation for my own ongoing wrestling. I need other places in my life to do that. And, um, and if, if there's too many of those gaps and I can't do that faithfully, then I need to step, step aside. So, yeah. so par- partly for a lot of pastors, my encouragement is um, th- think about your role in the pulpit as serving the congregation and growing their faith, not wrestling through your own faith. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful uh, way to look at it. The other area of congruence I think a lot of pastors struggle with is their own emotional health, mm-hmm. their own spiritual and mental health. Yep. And un- unfortunately, even as we're recording, this is an era where yeah. a lot of pastors are struggling in all of those areas. Um, what's your guidance for a church leader who's dealing, who, I don't know, feels like there's a not congruence between yeah. their faith and their private struggle? Yeah. Well, for one thing, um, I mean, first of all, my heart breaks for what's been happening lately. And for me, what it shows us is the, is the tragedy of, of, of a leader believing they need to project something that isn't true. Mm. So even when I say I'll stand before a congregation and it's not my job to work out my faith struggles, um, what I mean is that I'm not going to fake it either. I'm willing to own that I have areas of faith. I'm just not going to bring them into that. 
at the same time, many leaders need to not, I think your emotional health, what you have to be able to do is say, there's got to be places in my life that are private, but are not secret. So think, so see, I think of secrecy is I'm afraid that if anybody finds this out, I'm doomed. So think of secrecy as like being in a room where there's no lock on the door and you feel vulnerable or exposed. You'd have to hold that door closed. Private means I can go into this place. It's a safe place. If someone stumbled into the room in private, when it's a private space, it might be embarrassing, but it won't be wrong. So I wouldn't say that, you know, if, if anybody from my congregation heard a private moment between my wife and I, that would feel awkward, but it wouldn't be immoral, wrong, or shameful. It might be embarrassing just because it wasn't intended for that, but it wouldn't be something that I would need to hide. And many pastors don't have a private space, just a space that is safe, that is for them to work through and then to understand the difference between the public uh, persona. And I don't mean that as a fake thing. I mean that as like the public work you do um, and the role and the responsibility that you take on and the private place where I'm wrestling through what needs to be wrestled through in privacy. Um, I'll, I'll give you one simple illustration, not nearly as dramatic as we've been talking about. Many pastors, I think, make the mistake of talking about their children too much from the pulpit. Um, I say, I want my children to have a church and I want them to have a father. And there's no category called pastor's kid anywhere in the scripture. So the goal for my kids is every single rule that applied to every kid at the school, at the church applied to them. They got no special perks. The only thing they got was they got to be with me as their dad. So that meant they could sit next to me in church when I sat in the front row. That didn't mean they get to use, they get to, they didn't get to do the announcements. So they didn't get to have, they get to go on the roof or they didn't get to, um, you know, use equipment that other kids couldn't use. They couldn't steal cookies out of the, out of the kitchen. No kid got allowed to do that. Right. It was trying to keep a really consistent understanding of who they were. And I think that for all of us as, as pastors, we've got to do the same thing. How do we create a consistent sense that we are congruent? And not everybody needs to be have access to everything that we're working on all the time. Yeah, that's. I think that's really helpful. You write about um, faithful stewardship, mm-hmm. and I, I think you mentioned in the book that most leaders you know are much more comfortable with personal faithful stewardship than organizational. Yeah. Are you mm-hmm. specifically talking about staff management and just the business of running a church in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say that. Um, so one of the things I do uh, very often is I make a distinction between leadership and, and management and that, uh, that the scriptures don't give us a lot about leadership. Actually, they don't, we wish they gave us more. Um, I have one of my, one of my colleagues here at the school who was uh, an old Testament professor used to say, the only theology we have of leadership is that when God is leading, things are usually going well. And when humans step in to lead, things usually don't <laughs> like that. I was like, that was his statement to me about the scriptures, but we have a lot, but we don't have, have have leadership as, as explicit in the scriptures, but we do have management. It's called stewardship. It's taking care of the things, as one of my colleagues here at Fuller says, that are entrusted to our care. And so taking care of the people, the resources, the traditions, the institution, if you have it, whatever's been entrusted to your care, you have to take care of. Many of us are very comfortable as Christians with being good stewards of our lives, of our families, of our resources. But when you step into something as complex as a church system, 
Well, then we get overwhelmed and we have a hard time understanding that our job is to really be a good manager, a good steward of those relationships, of the staff that have been entrusted to you, of the resources, the denominational brands, the, all the things that make us up who we are. Our job is to, be, is to be trustworthy with them. And when we do so, then when people trust us, then they're likely, much more likely to follow us when we need to take them into environments where it's more uncertain. Yeah. And you're doing some work right now on um, sabotage. I know mm -hmm. we're both Friedman nuts and, and mm -hmm. family systems nuts. And Friedman and Bowen both talk a lot about sabotage when a leader brings change. You can mm -hmm. just count on sabotage. Yep. Don't even be surprised when it shows up. Mm -hmm. You cover sabotage in Canoeing the Mountains, but you're also doing some deeper work right now on sabotage and resilience. Would yeah. you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, indeed. So, so I said that uh, Canoeing the Mountains was written because when I was consulting – I would meet with pastors and the common whisper that I would hear when they finally trusted me was, you know, Todd, nobody ever trained me how to do this. Seminary didn't prepare me how to do this. Um, I thought I would be about the scriptures and about people. I care for people. I would teach the scriptures. That's what I would do. I wasn't ready for this change leadership stuff. Well, then the Canoeing the Mountains came out and I've been, I've traveled to probably over a hundred different churches and different denominations and places speaking on it. And what I found is when I, when the person who invites me, usually the bishop or the director of the uh, superintendent or the um, area director or whoever, the person in charge of training, they take me out to dinner. And what they would say at the end of the day is, you know, Todd, I'm not sure we have anybody who has the stomach to do this. Like, it's really hard. When people turn against you and people sabotage you, and as you said, it happens, Friedman told us, it happens 100% of the time, right? Yeah. When this happens, it's so demoralizing that people want to give up. And what I started realizing was that Friedman talked a lot about a failure of nerve. When people lost the courage to keep building change and would fall back into uh, to colluding with the people who wanted the status quo. What I discovered also was a failure of heart. That there are people who get so wounded and angry and cynical and bitter because they're trying to bring change and they get resistance that pretty soon they become disconnected. Yes. And so you, so they're not willing to go back, but they're also not willing to get close enough to people to move them forward. And so what I've been working on is the way in which, how do you over, how do you overcome and stay resilient, which is to stay connected to people well enough so that you can continue to bring change through the long process of their resistance. And the key to that, the analogy that I use is one of being tempered, like a tempered, tempered steel. That is stronger than raw steel. It's been shaped and molded and um, fired, and, but it's also more flexible also. And the, it's not like a sledgehammer that can bash through resistance. It's more a chisel. And um, the great line about this comes from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech where he talks about um, with this faith, the faith that God will eventually bring justice to the world, we will hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And that's the verb. How do we become tools that God can hew, use to hew um, hope out of despair, hew transformation out of resistance? I, I love how you're helping us figure out bitterness and anger because I think you're also describing... Um, you know, one of the foundational systems theory steps of differentiation of self. Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, 
what you're describing is is the ability for a faith leader to still see the other as fully human. Mm-hmm. Because I do think we tend to demonize out of self-protection and we shrink them down to less than you. We turn them into two-dimensional characters. Mm-hmm. So I love that you're challenging us to, if, if we want true, lasting, transformational change, we must stay connected to even those who are sabotaging. Indeed, indeed. And, and to think of it this way, that the notion of, think of it, this is I think the hardest part for us leaders is we have to stay connected to those people. They may or may not change. They, they may or may not change, but the system, the, or the family, the church, it can change. Whether those people change or not is up to them. They have to deal with that. But the system can change if you'll stay connected even to those people who are the most resistant. Because they're, well, they're, yeah. yeah. And the other message is we, you and I will change because it's better, it's healthier for my own, own emotional health to see someone as fully human than to write them off. Or, Indeed. Indeed. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I, that notion, I, I keep thinking that one of the most powerful parts of Friedman's statement that the leader is the person in the system who is takes responsibility for their own change, transformation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you also, I've, I've got a quote here, um, which I'm, I'm asking you to talk about, particularly for our young leaders listening. Mm-hmm. Our church has a whole lot of interns from college, and this is this is the challenge for them. Fail as soon as you can so you can learn as quickly as possible. And then I love the mantra. You called it like a crass mantra. We can fail, but we cannot suck. There's still a standard. But that is counterintuitive to to make sure you fail so you can learn. Yeah. I think what I would add to it now, which shows up in this next book, because this came from my conversation, particularly with younger leaders, uh, women leaders, leaders of color. Um, I would, my first word, if I could add then... I make an addendum to that statement would be this go to a place where you can fail early. I'm, I now take much more seriously that for a lot of our leaders, they are, they have been conditioned not to fail or be vulnerable because they have stepped into systems that don't understand failure. So they're punished for failure. They do. And it's way too fast. So, so um, my daughter is, uh, is just out of college and she just got her job at a church doing youth ministry. And um, she had an opportunity to be in a couple of different churches. One was pretty close to our home she, and in California. She ended up taking a job at a church in Texas, in Austin, Texas, because when she interviewed, she came back and said to me that that was the pastor and that was the staff that had the most interest in my development as a young leader. And I said, oh, by all means, go there. Like, I'd love to have you home, honey. I'd like, like, it's hard for me that you are, live in Texas and I'm in Los Angeles. But where I but where I really want her is a place that cares about her development. Now I can say to her, fail as fast as you can, learn everything you can, keep developing, because what matters at this stage of your life is that you keep learning and that you get okay with uh, with not letting failure um, take up, take a shot at your own identity. Yeah, and it matters just as much at yours and my stage of life. I think too. It's, yeah. I, I've been in ministry 24 years. I've been a lead pastor 14. I feel like I'm in a fresh season of failure to learn. You wrote about in the book how you yeah. had to pivot yeah. in your leadership. And that's very freeing yep. to not feel like I need to be an expert yeah. even after all this time. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is the, the organizations that are having the most amount of impact are the ones that are learning the most. And the only way that you can learn is if you have, have the room for failure. If you look at, if, yeah. if you just basically say, if we learn, we didn't fail. If everything we did 
was, and so to the only way to failure is if we uh, get so stubborn, we stay with something that's not working and we refuse to take the learning out of it. Well, then, then that's a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Friedman, I think calls that the uh, more of the same, the imaginative gridlock, I think would be his technical term. Yeah. 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 Oh, great, Todd. Just really great. Well, um, I think if you're willing to brace yourself like a man, uh, I'd like to inflict upon you my six questions of anxiety that I ask every guest. Okay. All right. Number one, what kind of leadership situations generate anxiety in your life? We don't need an exhaustive list. Just give us a couple. Uh, the, the biggest place that creates anxiety in my list is when I'm in situations where I have responsibility and not authority. When I, um, I'm, I'm an, I, if, if I don't know if it works, but I'm an Enneagram eight. So I always say that like, I don't have to kick down every door, just the ones that are closed. And if I'm in an environment <laughs> where um, I am not given the ability to exercise the authority that I need to make something happen, then I get, I feel really trapped and I, I get really anxious. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. In my own work, I've tried to identify the 19 environments that generate anxiety, regardless of your mm-hmm. wiring or Enneagram mm-hmm. number. And one of them, is an imbalance of power and responsibility. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, just yeah. a guarantee. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, number two, my, my thesis is that oftentimes it's the leader who's the last to know when they're not well. Um, when do you know when you're not well? Or if you want to take it another way, who in your life helps you figure out you're not well? Um, that's, a, that's a very good insight, Steve. I think that's, a, that's one of the things I really like best about the way your book works. What usually shows up is the last thing that stops working well for me is my work. Like I can work a long time unwell, which is really dangerous. I can be really productive unwell. So what I usually need to do to pay attention to when I'm unwell is to pay attention to my body. When my sleep is off, when I'm eating wrong, when I'm gaining weight, my body tells me first, my relationships go second. I'm married to a therapist, so there's so my wife is right on top of that. But um, but she's also wise enough to know that if I'm not ready to look at it, then her raising it too early is not going to be helpful. So I, unfortunately, usually by the time I notice, it's when my work is suffering, which means my body has been suffering and my relationships have been suffering already, and that is always terrible. So uh, yeah. that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Uh, all right. Next one. When I was in seminary, everyone warned us that criticism would be part of the job. Mm-hmm. What they didn't warn us, and I don't blame them for it, but they didn't warn us that you can cope with criticism, but cumulative criticism can take you out. Mm. Have you had a season of leadership where you felt like the criticism was piling up to a point where it was overwhelming? Yeah. Um, I would say that one of the hardest parts for me is that the um, because I was put into senior leadership early, um, many many times I didn't hear the criticism as directly. Um, it would come through the system. It would come to other people. It would come to the places. So by the time I was aware of it, it had it there was a pile of it. It was like not only are we not attending to it, but we haven't felt like free to tell you, and now it's really really bad. And that combination of all of a sudden feeling overwhelmed, I said, it's like you wake up in the morning and not only is your house a mess, but your house has been a mess for a long time and you didn't know this because you slept so long. 
and the plants are all dead. The dog hasn't eaten the like, and then I just felt the for me, it would feel a shame of how could I be in so much denial to let it go this far? That, that's the part that piles up on me. Um, then I pile up on myself. So yeah. what I've really needed is to make, I've, I've had to actually normalize criticism. Like, so the people can criticize me. Can give me, I just think of it as feedback. Give me feedback. I mean, today I was in a meeting with one of my uh, partners. She's here. She works closely to me. We have a meeting tomorrow that is pretty tricky. And I said to her, look, I'm not sure I'm handling this right. Before the end of the day, I need you to tell me anything you need me to know that you think I should be aware of before we go into that meeting tomorrow. But because I'm the boss, I needed to tell her that in such a way that she would know. I mean it. Like I need to hear it. Right. And I need to hear it before the end of the day. But so for me, because it will pile up. So it's important to me to I have to take the initiative to get the feedback I need early enough so that it won't. Yeah, I think that's really perceptive. As you were talking, you were mentioning about waking up to a messy house. What jumped into my mind, it's almost like waking up on a treadmill that the way you wake up is someone plugged it in and turned it on fast and you're already like, yeah, you're yeah. behind before you can even have a chance. Yeah. Mm. Ah, it's great. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of our work uh, or my work is also um, systemic anxiety, not just individual. And obviously that's a huge piece of family systems is noticing anxiety in a group. And um, it's, it's, it's um, Weakland and Watzlawick that, that teach us, that you can pay attention to anxiety in a group when you find a recurring chronic pattern and that when mm-hmm. it happens again, you, you're not surprised. Uh, can you in the moment just lay out a pattern that you've seen in any organization that goes again and again that's yep. generating anxiety? Yeah, and very often that pattern is uh, referred to as a strength, right? So um, so we are a family that, all, that um, laughs well, but it's all negative humor. Or we are, uh, or the thing about being with a faculty is we're all critical thinkers. So, you know, so here, and, and we realize that every single idea is cut down. Nobody has anything constructive. Nobody will actually take a risk because they know that what's going to get met, met with is nothing but a criticism because that's the only skill we're good at. So when people default back to their, their most comfortable skill, even when that skill isn't helping the system, um, using humor in a bad way instead of empathizing with people, um, caring for people so deeply, but we can't move forward. You know, whatever that skill is, it's usually a defaulting back to a strength that we all tend to protect, but we're protecting it for the status quo, not because we need to move forward. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. All right, Todd, you're, you're, you're sailing through. The last question mm-hmm. Is, is simply born out of, well, it's born out of two things. It's born out of the idea that I think too many of us leaders, when we think about the gifts of God, we always think about them in conduit terms where we're passing them on to someone mm-hmm. else. We're never thinking about them in recipient terms. It's also born, oddly enough, out of a question that Dana Carvey asked Jerry Seinfeld on mm-hmm. um, Comedians in Cars. The question is, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Mm. Um, I am most fully loved when I am with my family having a meal outside. Those are like my three favorite things. My family or my friends. Many, I've got some friends who are like family. We are sharing a meal together. I'm Italian. So, so meals are like a love language. And the beauty of nature speaks to me in ways that nothing else can. So if I am sitting on a 
porch with a view with people that I love eating a meal. It feels like the world is working perfectly and that the God who knows me and knows I needed this gave that to me as a gift. But it's those three components every single time. Well, as an, uh, as a West Australian who grew up on the beach, God is especially affectionate to you because of Dana Point and San Clemente and some of that amazing West Coast. Yeah, some of those years. I mean, like, so I don't live there anymore, but for years that was really beautiful. And to, and to me today, actually, I have a little place in Ketchum, Idaho, and we have a little outside deck, and my family are all gathered there. And my, and my kids are grown, so we don't get together, right? So whenever we are all together, that is a gift, and I can barely make it through grace without crying. And so if we are sitting outside in our deck looking up at the, um, at the Pioneer Mountains, um, that's pretty, pretty beautiful. That's awesome. Todd, I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah, it's really my pleasure, Steve. Nice to meet you too. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 